0: pray. Lord, you have brought us to this place this morning, and we are yours, bought by the precious blood of Jesus, and wrapped in the robes of his righteousness, not our own. We have none. We pretend so often to have righteousness, but none of it is ours. All of it is his. All of it is yours, O Lord. And so I pray, Father, that You would find in this house of worship humble hearts that are eager to bow before the King and to proclaim what every creature in heaven and earth will one day proclaim, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Speak to us now, Father. Show us the truth of your word, the truth of your Son, that the Logos came in flesh and dwelt among us and died in our place. Help us to see that with clarity this morning and to understand it in a way that affects us deeply and changes us. Father, make us a more holy people, a more worshipful people, a people who live more to your glory and less to our own, for therein is joy in life and glory for you. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen and amen. If you would stand with me, we are at the end of John chapter 19. John chapter 19. I will tell you that I have purchased a new Bible and kind of stumbled through it last week, but um, I'm getting used to my new ESV. And the elders say, I can preach out of it. So, if I stumble in this reading, you'll know why. John 19, beginning with verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that day was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate if their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. and You can be seated. July 17th, 1429, several years after Charles VI of France died, Charles the Seventh was crowned king. In that year, the year is kind of there between the king's death and the next king's coronation. There was, however, a terrible civil war. Who would be the next king? To keep this from happening again, the French established a tradition that was consistent with their belief in the divine succession of kings. They established by law that when an elder king died, his successor, previously established, would immediately be named king, without any time in between. Along with this new law came a new tradition. Upon the death of the elder king, a declaration would go forth, and it went like this, the king is dead, long live the king. In other words, the elder king is dead. The new king is immediately king. Long live the king. In England, the same tradition was honored when King Henry III died, and everyone knew that his son Edward was the successor to the throne. Problem was, Edward was fighting in one of the Crusades, and he wouldn't even hear about his father's death for months. Nevertheless... They knew that in a matter of months, Edward would be back, and so as soon as King Henry III died, the clarion call went out, the king is dead, long live the king. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying in the Gospel of John, and we've learned about the kingship of Jesus. We learned that he is not only the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, he is also king. He rules in the hearts of that innumerable host of men and women given to him by the Father. We who belong to Christ are the given ones. We are his kingdom, and he is our king. And one of the most striking things about the gospel records is the portrayal of Jesus, not only as king, but as the suffering king. One who did not come to conquer nations and earthly governments, but who came to conquer sin and death for his people by dying in their place. In the next two messages, I hope to cover two passages of scripture that are of immense importance. And in the passage before us this morning, the Apostle John seeks to establish one primary primary truth, namely... The king is dead. The king is really and truly dead. This leaves the discerning reader hanging with the question, if the king is dead, then who, pray, will be king? And the answer will come next week. The king is dead. Long live the king. This week, John recounts the details of the first half of this declaration. John wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt that on the day before the high Sabbath of the Jews, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus, the King of kings, suffered and really and truly died on the cross. If you're taking notes this morning, I've just got a couple of points. Here's the first. The King's death. Is verified. The king's death is verified. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus could have died some other way than he did die. He had to die as he died on the cross. Theologically speaking, it was essential that Jesus' death be neither natural nor accidental, It had to be a result of judicial condemnation. Assassination would not have been sufficient. Who gets assassinated? Important people. But Jesus was not to be killed as an important person. Suicide, that wouldn't have done it. A selfish act to redeem others, it wouldn't have worked. Jesus had to be condemned as a villain, the scum of mankind, the meanest of criminals, if he would serve as mediator and perfect sacrifice for all who would believe. Furthermore, he could not be stoned to death in some lawless fashion by a mob, which was often the attempt of the Jews, right, on Jesus' life, Whenever he did something that they didn't like, it seemed, or said something that they were opposed to or sound blasphemous, they would gather a mob and try to stone him to death, nor could he be beheaded. Beheading was a form of execution that was mercifully reserved by the Romans for their own citizens, which is why tradition says the apostle Paul was not crucified as Peter was, he was beheaded. It was meant for a select group whom Rome considered better than everyone else, but that would not have been appropriate for Jesus, not to fulfill his mission. No, he had to die upon a tree, and in the case of Rome, it would not just be a tree, it would be a cross. He had to die upon a tree as one who was cursed by God, as Isaiah said, as one who is despised and rejected of men and numbered with transgressors. Louis Burkhoff explains, by dying that death, Jesus met the extreme demands of the law. And at the same time, he died an accursed death and thus gave evidence of the fact that he became a curse for us. You remember last week when we talked about this, when Jesus died, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was going on there? God was taking all of the Old Testament promised curses and pouring it out on his son. He was, in effect, telling his son in that moment, you be damned. Go to hell to his son. Why? Because that's what he will say to everyone who fails to believe that he is their only hope. He poured out the full measure of his promised curse on the wicked upon his son. And we were talking together about this over the table with my family last night. And it was a wonderful, wonderful discussion. But we got to this part and I told the children, listen, when you examine what took place on the cross that day and you compare it with the description of hell, the agony, the inescapability, the darkness, the being forsaken of God, Jesus experienced all of it, all of it, on the cross. And So as John approaches this terrible narrative of Jesus' execution, he offers us, uh, he offers us a, enough detail to establish and reveal the intense suffering of Jesus and what he endured on our behalf, but he doesn't spend a lot of time there. He doesn't tell us all the details. We have to look elsewhere to speculate on What it must have been like to have nails pierced through your hands. What it must have been like to hang upon the cross. And how a person might possibly die, and probably die, on the cross. John doesn't tell us any of that. Neither do any of the other gospel writers. In fact, when it comes to the crucifixion, all of the, the gospel writers essentially just say the same thing, and they crucified him. End of explanation. More importantly... John is concerned that everyone understands that at the end of the day, there could be no doubt that the deed was done, that Jesus' cross work was finished, and that he had really, truly died. Why is that important? It's It's important because even in John's lifetime, there were those who had begun spreading heretical rumors Rumors like Jesus couldn't have died on the cross because he was not really an honest-to-goodness human being. You have to be human to die on a cross. Jesus couldn't have been human. The Messiah couldn't have been a human. The two heresies that espouse this kind of idea are called docetism and gnosticism, for those of you who care. The term docetism comes from the word Dokeo, or dokio, meaning to seem. To seem. It just seemed like Jesus was dying on the cross. But in reality, Jesus wasn't really human. It was was just an, he was more of an emanation from God. Some kind of spirit being, but he, he couldn't have been human. The Gnostics, on the other hand, taught something very similar, that spirit is good and flesh is evil. And they came to the same conclusion. Because spirit is good and all flesh is evil, then Jesus couldn't have had flesh, which is why the apostle Paul wrote Colossians. He died in the flesh. God in flesh. Paul talks a lot about Jesus' body. And one of the evidences, even in our own text from last week, is when Jesus said, I thirst. Spirit beings don't thirst. But Jesus did. He was a real man. And 400 years later, after Jesus' death, Muhammad came on the scene and began espousing espousing a, a similar teaching. His claim was that God loved Jesus too much to allow him to suffer on the cross. Muslims today will say, we love Jesus more than you do, because you believe his father put him on the cross, and we believe God loved him too much to do that. And the one who was crucified on the cross was a lookalike. God placed a substitute in the place of Jesus. Imagine, Jesus, who came to make a substitutionary sacrifice, was substituted for on the cross, Therefore, it was not Jesus who died. It was someone else or something else. But John labors to undermine any view that espouses Jesus to be something other than a ra- real man who actually died on the cross or a different man than the very Jesus whom the disciples had followed in the previous three years. The importance of Jesus' death, frankly, can't be overestimated. We rest our souls in the first and finished work of Christ. As J.C. Ryle warns, without a real death, there could be no real resurrection. Without a real death and real resurrection, the whole of Christianity is a house built on sand and has no foundation at all. There had to be a real death. And so this whole passage is about the fact that Jesus really, truly died. What do we know about crucifixion? All we know is, then they crucified him. What do we know about the death? We've got multiple, I mean, half this chapter is to establish that Jesus actually died. At the end of chapter 19, John offers two kinds of proof to establish that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross. First, he offers eyewitness testimony, and then he points to Old Testament prophecy. Let me show it to you. Notice the king's death is verified through eyewitness testimony. And notice how John makes this intention of his explicit when he writes in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is Telling the truth. Now there's, he tips his hand and reveals who he's talking about. It's himself. He is telling us the truth. This is John. John is saying, I was there. I saw it. I saw the whole thing with my very eyes. This is not simply report that I heard from someone else. It is my own testimony of what I myself have seen and what I heard. First John witnesses the the breaking of the criminal's legs. Look at verses 30 and 31. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And there it is, Jesus now is dead. Verse 31, Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken. And they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the second. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered he was already dead. He was already dead. John first witnesses this. This is what I saw. You gotta know that normally when the Romans crucified a criminal, they would leave the bodies hanging on the cross for days. And just let the birds of the air feast until they were ready to take the corpse down. But this was unconscionable for the Jews. In fact, it was forbidden by the Mosaic law. It was Friday. It was Friday afternoon. It was moving toward evening. It was preparation day. Tomorrow would be the Sabbath. And it wouldn't just be the Sabbath. It would be the high Sabbath, which meant... Once a year, when the Sabbath came around, it came around on the week of the atonement. And on that week, when Saturday came, it wasn't just Sabbath, it was high Sabbath. It was a really important day for them. But the Mosaic law had said for the Jews, when they executed a criminal, when they back in Deuteronomy, back old, 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 before there were hardly any laws except for the Mosaic Law, one of the restrictions was if you nail someone to a tree, you're not allowed to let him stay overnight. And on a high Sabbath, especially, they don't want to violate that because the law said if you do that, if you let a, a, a man who was nailed to a tree, you let his body stay hung on that tree overnight, God said, I will curse your land. The curse. And so the Pharisees come. They didn't, they didn't have any problem with executing an innocent man. But they did have a problem with ceremonial law, breaking ceremonial law. They, uh, truly, the, uh, Jesus was right when, when he said, you strain the gnat and swallow the camel. And so here they are, straining the gnat again. They know the Mosaic Law. It doesn't allow them to leave someone overnight. And so the Jews ask Pilate, verse 31, if Pilate would hurry things along, that is hurry their death along, the Roman way, namely by breaking the legs of the condemned people hanging on the cross. This always brought about a speedy death because the only way the victims of crucifixion could breathe was to push up with their legs and take a breath and slip back down, and then push up with their legs and take a breath. And if you were in pretty good shape, good health, you might be able to hold out doing that for days. So Pilate ordered the soldiers to finish the job. And they did it by taking a mallet and smashing their shins so that they could no longer push up. And so here's what the text says. Let's read it again. Since it was day of preparation, that's Friday. Remember, Sabbath, not allowed to cook, not allowed to start a fire. It's Sabbath, not only Sabbath, but high Sabbath. You're not allowed to do anything. So how do you, when do you prepare your meals? You got to do it the day before. That's why they call it preparation day, Friday. So it was preparation day. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, notice with me. Take them away. Bury them. That's going to be really important. So, verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who had been crucified with him. And then they came to the third man, Jesus. And they saw that he was already dead. He's already dead. So, no need to break his legs. No need to break his legs. J.C. Ryle expounds on this. Accustomed... As Roman soldiers necessarily were to see death in every form, wounds of every kind, and dead bodies of every description, and trained to take away human life by their profession, they were of all men least likely to make a mistake about such a matter. Thus, we have it most expressly recorded that the soldiers saw that he was already dead and therefore Did not break his legs. You see, John is belaboring this. He's working hard. He wants us to understand Jesus is already dead. Second, John also witnesses Jesus' being pierced through the heart. He testifies in verse 34 that one of the soldiers, instead of breaking Jesus' legs, took a spear and pierced his side. You think Roman spear. You think of the head of the spear. It looks like kind of like a man's hand or like a teardrop, about the size of a man's hand, pretty wide, about four, five inches wide. And they knew exactly what rib to stick it under to pierce the heart. And so one of the soldiers, we're not going to break his legs. Let's just make sure he's gone. And John says, he pierced his side, and immediately blood and water flowed from the wound. And over the centuries, many have speculated about the spiritual meaning of blood and water. Some have said, it's a, it's a spiritual picture of the Lord's Supper. And others have said, no, it's a, a symbol of justification and sanctification. Uh, I guess it could be anything you want it to be, if, if you're going to speculate Others have really veered off into gross mysticism, and some of the artwork you have of a medieval knight standing on a horse next to the cross, collecting the blood and the water in a cup as if it were the Holy Grail to be drank out of. The reality is, however, that in this passage, John is simply trying to prove without a doubt that within three hours of Jesus' crucifixion, he was already in absolutely verifiably, physically dead. And perhaps if the Romans had denied the Jews the request and left him undisturbed on the cross, some might have reason to speculation whether or not he had truly died on the cross. There is the swoon theory that Jesus came out of the tomb because he never really died. He just swooned. Really, it's called the swoon theory. He just went a little bit unconscious, really, after hanging on a cross for three hours and having a sword thrust through your heart. And not only that, but we know by Jesus' own statement that he gave up his spirit. And by John's testimony, he was already dead. By the soldier's testimony, he was already dead. By one soldier's actions, we know he was already dead. But the testimony of John, that with his own eyes he witnessed one of the soldiers thrusting the spear in his side, which produced blood and water, indicated a rupture of the heart and leaves no room for speculation. Those of you who have studied medicine and anatomy probably have read on this. If you pierce the body at the heart cavity, especially a short time after death, what are you going to get? Blood and water, or something that appears to be water. Little indeed that reckless Roman soldier dreamed that he might be a helper of the Christian religion. When he thrust that spear into the Lord's side, he had no idea of the proof that he was given. He was giving the world that Jesus was actually dead. In three days, that was really going to matter. And so John concludes by saying, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. And here's why. Notice the text. That you also may, well, believe. That's the whole point, right? These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. John is saying, I'm giving you my own eyewitness testimony to help you believe. And what you need to believe at this point Forget the skeptics, forget the Gnostics, forget the Docetists, forget the Muslim view on this. What you need to understand is that Jesus was actually, verifiably, physically dead. The king is dead. The king is dead. And so the king's death is verified through eyewitness testimony. Second, the king's death is verified through Old Testament prophecy. In the following statement, John is essentially saying, you should believe that Jesus died on the cross, not only because I saw it, but because it happened just as God foretold it. John says, verse 36, for these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Clearly, John views Jesus as our Passover lamb, sacrificed on our behalf. And you might be asking, how do you get that from this statement? How do you get that Jesus is the Passover lamb from this statement, not one of his bones shall be broken? Well, I get that because the statement is directly connected with the Mosaic instruction on how to offer, cook, and eat the Passover lamb. Specifically, Moses said, when you eat it, you are not allowed to break any of its bones. Isn't that interesting? Why? Why? Well, we won't know why until the Christ comes. Until an inspired author like John says, here's the reason why. So that you would know that Jesus is what John the Baptist said he was. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Peter picks up on this theme as well. In 1 Peter uh, 1.19, he says this of us, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He is the Paschal Lamb. He is the Passover Lamb. In Psalm 3420, this is probably the text that John was thinking of, the psalmist says of Messiah, God keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. And in the New Testament, Paul applies this image to Jesus as our Passover lamb when he writes 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. If he is the Passover lamb, then none of his bones can be broken. And so John says, I was there. They were supposed to break his legs. They were supposed to break his legs. They broke the other two guys' legs. Why didn't they break Jesus' legs? His answer, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And by so saying John pulls back the veil and reveals to us the invisible hand of God that is orchestrating it all. And so you see, Jesus not only needed to die, but he had to die in a certain way. He had to die as our Passover lamb. And though the other two men had their legs broken, the mighty hand of providence would not permit it for Jesus so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But there was more prophecy fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. For John says in verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Whom they have pierced. John sees the piercing of Jesus' side as the fulfillment of Zechariah 12, verse 10. And this is the prophecy that says, one day Israel will wake up to the reality of what they did back then. And this is what Isaiah 53 is really all about. It's about one day the Jews coming to their senses and looking at the lamb of God and saying, "I can't believe we did this to him. Why did we do this to him? Why didn't we see?" And Zechariah comes along and Zechariah comes along and he says, "We will look on him who we had pierced." And they will see him. It's amazing, isn't it? How Jesus' life and death repeatedly fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, even Jesus' birth, and all along the way, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. It has statistically been said that if you wanna if you want to consider the possibility, just the mathematical possibility of having one man fulfill just eight of the prophecies, um, it would look something like this. One man fulfilling eight of the prophecies. I mean, where he's going to be born, you know, the wise men, the way he would die, just eight of those prophecies. It would be like covering the state of Texas in two feet of silver dollars and sending a man blindfolded and say, there's one in there, you get one choice. Reach down and pick it up. The chances of him picking the right one are the same chances, approximately, of one man fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament prophecies. It's amazing. John is showing us these things as convincing proofs that the death of our Lord at Calvary was something that was foreseen and predetermined by God. Hundreds of years before crucifixion, every part of all of all of this was arranged in the divine counsel of God. And the minutest particulars were revealed to the prophets. The Apostle Paul was right when he said 1 Corinthians fifteen three that Jesus died according to the scriptures. JC Ryle once again exclaims It really requires more unreasoning faith to be an infidel than to be a Christian. The man who regards the repeated fulfillments of prophecy about Christ's death, such as the prophecies about his dress, his thirst, his pierced side, his bones, as a result of chance and not of design, must indeed be a credulous man. You say, oh, credulous, what does that mean? The punchline, it just didn't work. Okay, must be indeed a stupid man. Mindless And consider the sovereignty of God over what happened specifically in the days of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. If the Jews had not interfered, if the Jews had not interfered and had him taken down from the cross and buried on Friday, guess what? He wouldn't have been in the tomb to rise again on Sunday. Here's the point. Who did God use to put Jesus on the cross? He used the Sanhedrin. And Pilate. Who did God use to get Jesus in the grave? Listen, the Roman tradition was leave him on the cross. The birds will take care of it. But who did God use to get Jesus in the tomb? He used the Sanhedrin and Pilate. And everything happened exactly, exactly as planned. Again, Ryle says... How true it is that the wickedest enemies of God are only axes and saws and hammers in his hands and are ignorantly his instruments for doing his work in this world. The restless, busy meddling of Caiaphas uh, and his companions was actually one of the causes that Christ rose on the third day after death, and his messiahship was proven. Pilate was their tool but they were God's tool. Those who interceded for his crucifixion also interceded for his burial. And by so doing, they actually paved the way for the crowning miracle of his resurrection. All of that being compressed, God is in control. And you need to know that right now in this political season. Listen, Whoever just popped into your mind, they are nothing but an axe, a saw, and a hammer in God's hand to accomplish all his holy will. And in that, we have great hope. Our hope is not in politicians or presidents or kings. Our hope is in the Lord our God. Okay, that wasn't in the notes, but... So the death of the king was substantiated by eyewitness testimony, and by Old Testament prophecy. In all of this, the king's death is verified. But there's more. Not only is the king's death verified, but the king's body is then glorified. Verses 36 through 42. Let's just read it again because we have time. The older I get, seems the shorter my sermons get, and all God's people said. <laughs> okay, verse um, thirty-eight. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night think John 3:16, right? Nicodemus, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as it's the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close by at hand, they laid Jesus there. You also know that um, the Sanhedrin came back to Pilate and they said, listen, we're concerned That the disciples are going to get in there, steal the body, and say that he's risen from the dead. So do we have permission to seal the tomb and place a guard? And Pilate said, seal it, and you have a guard. They sealed the tomb and put a guard there after they put Jesus in to make sure nobody could tamper with the body. Thank you very much for that evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Listen, Jesus' death was the last stage of his humiliation, but his burial was the first stage of his glorification. Isaiah predicted, Isaiah 53 verse 9, that though Messiah would die among wicked men, he would be with a rich man in his death. John actually records that after his death, he was attended to by two rich men. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who met with Jesus at night back in John chapter 3 when he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we know you are a great teacher of the law. And Jesus just cuts through the chase and says, unless you were born again, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish under God's curse but will have everlasting life, life, the life of God in you, like rivers of living water. Again, we must not miss the primary theme of the text, namely that at the end of the day, Jesus was really, truly dead. Not only was that demonstrated in what transpired at the cross, but it's further confirmed by the fact that two wealthy scholarly men made sure he had a proper, almost royal burial. And you think Joseph, Joseph Jesus' is stepdad, right? He's apparently dead by now. I wonder what his burial was like. I think he got 75 pounds. Can you imagine how much that cost? I can't, I, I tried to look it up and couldn't find. The only thing I could find was that when Mary poured out her spikenard on Jesus' feet. It was a pound of nard, and it was worth a year's salary. This was, and maybe it doesn't work because we don't know the correspondence in price, but this was 75 pounds, almost as if Nicodemus is saying, Lord, I did not sacrifice for you one whit in life. I give my all your death. This is the primary theme. And it seems that Joseph was the first to kind of step out on the limb here and risk everything, his position in the Sanhedrin, the council, his position in the community. You remember the Sanhedrin had, had, had set word out to everybody and said, if anybody says he's the Christ, you're out of the synagogue, which means you're a social outcast. You're a social outcast. You, you can't be a part of what we do anymore. You're out of the club. For what Joseph did with Pilate's body, he was in serious trouble. Mark's give, Mark gives us a little more information about this. He tells us Mark 15, verse 43 and following. Here's the other narrative from another gospel author. He writes, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, listen to this, verse 44. Pilate wondered if he was really dead by this time. You know why? Because he should have still been alive. He should have still been alive. It had only been three hours. And summoning the centurion... That is, the head Roman soldier, centurion, century 100, he was in charge of 100 men. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And, verse 45, ascertaining this from the centurion, that is, that he was truly dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen cloth and took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, who were looking on to see where he laid. And so some of the women went with him. No doubt the council made him pay severely for this when they discovered it. Apparently, while Joseph was speaking to Pilate, Nicodemus also stepped out. He took courage And laying down a large sum of money, he purchased a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, for Jesus' burial. The 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, what they would do is, his myrrh was kind of a dry substance. Um, Aloes, they had sandalwood, and it was dry, and they would mix it together. And as they wrapped Jesus, they would pour this into the cloth, this mixture. Sometimes they would turn it into a paste and smear it, and it made this perfume. It had a preservative effect, but it kept, it kept the tomb from smelling bad, at least for a little while. It was a grace. It was, it was a way to honor the dead. But you didn't honor everybody like this. I mean, it has got 75 pounds of this stuff laying around? By the way, the word myrrh here is smyrna for those of you who are into thinking about the seven churches of Revelation. Clearly, Jesus didn't have a royal funeral, but it is at this point that Jesus' descent into ultimate humiliation reverses course. He is with a rich man in his death, two rich men, and at least three women who love him And they are going to honor him in death. In two days, he will be completely restored to his former glory as the majestic Son of God. God. And yet, even here at his burial, rulers, rulers are beginning to bow before him. Jesus, let us take care of this. Let us take care of this. We are here to take care of you. Our counsel has condemned you. We were the ones who put you to death. We repent. We will pay whatever. We will take whatever risk. We bow before you. You are our king. Jesus had not been tended to with such wealth and privilege since the early days of his childhood when the three wise men, or however many they were, showed up with gifts of gold and gold frankincense and myrrh see the connection as in birth so in death he will be honored his burial was the beginning of the restoration of the king but for now this is where the narrative ends Jesus is left in the tomb sealed shut with a great stone and those who love him walking away thinking The king is dead. The king is dead. Who will be king? The king is dead. But early on Sunday, the funeral dirge will be replaced with exuberant rejoicing. No longer will there be grief that mourns the king is dead. Then their souls will exclaim with great joy and great delight, The king was dead. Long live the king. But you're going to have to come back next week to hear about that. For now, beloved, take comfort in the death of Jesus Christ. Let me finish with one more comment from J.C. Ryle. He was such a blessing to me this week. Writing in the 1800s, he says this, We rest our souls on the finished work if we rest them on the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. We need not fear that either sin or Satan or law shall condemn us on that last day. We may lean back on the thought that we have a Savior who has done all and paid all and accomplished all, performed all that is necessary for our salvation we might take up the challenge of the apostle. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, yes, rather, who has risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. When we look at our own works, we may well be ashamed of their imperfections, but when we look at the finished work of Christ, we may feel great peace. We are complete in him, if we believe. And that's why John wrote all of this. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ Messiah. And that believing you might have life in his name. So I ask you, do you believe? I'm not asking you if you walked an aisle in church someday in your history. I'm not asking you if you prayed a prayer. There in any place in the Bible where you find anybody praying a prayer. The real question is: is Jesus your King? Are you his servant? Have you repented of your past life, your former manner of life? You say, my life wasn't that bad. Have you repented of your righteousness? Because you have none apart from him. If he is your king, then he is your righteousness. If he is your king, then he is the sacrifice that paid for your sin. If he is your king, there is fruit in your life being born of holiness and community And confession of sin and love of God's word and love of God's people. Where there is not those things, there is probably no spirit within you. Not the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in to an unholy man, that unholy man suddenly begins to become holy. Not perfection, but direction. Are you growing in Christ? Are you seeing sanctification? Paul told Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. Is your progress evident to anybody? Or does your mother say, my son is Christian because he prayed a prayer in church? Is he your king? Is he your king? Is he your king? Do you believe? As Isaiah prophesied, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. As I read the story of the passion of Christ, I can't help but say, with those who have gone before, the king is dead. Long live the king. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you didn't Leave us to ourselves. We needed a king who was a shepherd because we, without you, were wandering sheep. That very same Isaiah 53 says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that was our due fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Oh, Father, I pray, would you send your spirit to open the eyes of anyone here who doesn't know you truly. Open their heart that they might see their need for Christ And, oh, Father, would you accept them? Would you receive them? Would you give them the grace to pray, oh, Father, accept me based on the merits of Christ and not on my my own, my own righteousness, which is nothing? Father, grant them salvation. Change them this very moment, this very day, for your glory and for their incalculable joy based on the death and resurrection of the sinless Son of God. These things we pray in Jesus' name.